Years ago, a strike by the milk deliverers in New York City was averted at the last minute. Negotiations between union leaders and company executives had become very intense. In fact, an insider commented, the parties were far apart. There was just too much anger, too many flare-ups. Nothing was getting accomplished. Milk deliveries would have come to a screeching halt for the folks in New York City if both sides had not agreed to a cooling-off period. This 10-day cool-down allowed passions to settle. It helped negotiators think more clearly. Emotions were removed from the equation. The cooling-off gave new meaning to an old saying, don't cry over spilt milk. And it was a cooling-off period that helped Paul and the Corinthians. Why, too, should they cry over spilt milk? There'd been a falling out of sorts between this pastor, this church planner, and the church that he had started. And rather than another visit, Paul knew that a cooling of emotions was what was needed. Chapter 2 begins, But I determined this within myself, that I would not come again to you in sorrow. In chapter 1, the Corinthians had been critical of Paul. He had promised to visit them. And yet he hadn't followed through. They accused him of being flighty and wishy-washy and unable to keep his word. They used this aborted visit, what really amounted to just a scheduling change. They used it to attack Paul's credibility. They called into doubt his word in general, even the trustworthiness of his ministry. And yet there were legitimate reasons for his postponement, not the least of which was for everyone to just cool down. In chapter 1, verse 23, Paul had written, To spare you, I came no more to Corinth. Tensions had gotten high. Feelings were raw. Paul was angry at their libel-laden accusations. At the time, the relationship between the apostle and this upstart church had become volatile. If Paul had visited at this time, sparks could fly. I mean, a real blow-up might occur. And so to avoid potential danger and damage in the church, Paul stayed put. Notice verse 1, Paul says, He determined, I would not come again to you in sorrow. Now this seems to indicate that he had paid an earlier visit to Corinth that we're not told about in his letters or in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 18 describes Paul's initial visit to Corinth, and it was anything but sorrowful. Paul spent a year and a half there planning this church. It was a joy. He had a blast. It was later when he returned from Syria to Ephesus that he heard of trouble in the Corinthian church. That's when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians to address their errors. And there are scholars who believe that Paul followed up that first letter with a jaunt across the Aegean Sea, that he paid the Corinthians a visit, but it didn't go so well. Paul tangled with his critics, tempers flared, words were exchanged, hurts were hurled, feelings were raw. It got so heated, in fact, the visit seriously threatened the relationship that Paul had with this church. He left Corinth exceedingly sorrowful, worried 
about the Corinthians. This is what he references in verse 2. For if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad? But the one who is made sorrowful by me. Paul just wanted his relationship with the Corinthians to be mutually encouraging. They were brothers after all. He hoped that they would both cheer each other up, not bum each other out. He writes, and I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came, I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. Paul was concerned that if he had come to Corinth at that time, his presence might have sparked a conflict so extreme that it caused a permanent breach between them. That's what he had tried to avoid by postponing his visit. Often, Christian ministry and leadership does involve confrontation. When people err, they need to be corrected. When rebellion rises, it has to be challenged. When authority is usurped, someone in authority has to stand up. Blatant sin or brewing rebellion can't be tolerated. And if it festers into something destructive, then the whole church gets damaged. Someone has to impose order and work out a resolution, even if it's an unpleasant one. In these situations, someone has to step up and be the heavy. And yet, this was not a role that Paul relished. Have you ever gotten in the middle of two friends that were squabbling? It can be a very dangerous place. This kind of a troubleshooter becomes a target himself. He gets exposed to friendly fire. In just doing what's right, you can bruise feelings. And when that happens, people get defensive, and they polarize, and they even retaliate. It just gets awful. The odds of there being a misunderstanding ratchets through the roof. Collateral damage becomes a real possibility. And this is why Paul tried to avoid being the heavy. He usually sent Titus or Timothy when an enforcer was needed. He let someone else do the discipline. And this is the policy that we've adopted here at Calvary Chapel. Once upon a time, I did all the church discipline. Made me a real popular guy. I was the one who went to the folks in sin, and I had the hard conversations. And if they accepted what I said, well, then great. But if they bucked it and got mad, their anger was directed at me. And since I'm the guy up front on Sunday mornings, they ended up leaving the church. Sadly, they stopped hearing God's word, which was really what they needed most. That's why I've now turned over the confrontations and the discipline to our elders and to our assistant pastors. Now if a person gets angry, they get ticked off at James (laughs) or one of the elders. But guess what? They still come and they hear the Bible study. My relationship with the person gets preserved so that I can help them grow in Christ. And this was the reason that Paul didn't make his promised visit to Corinth. He was trying to preserve his relationship with those who were bucking and kicking against biblical truths. Rather than visit Corinth, Paul sent a letter instead. And he mentions this letter in verse 4. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you, With many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. 
Now, it could be that the letter he refers to here is 1 Corinthians. In that letter, he does call out sin, and he calls the church to repentance. But some scholars believe that there was another letter, a letter we no longer possess. They call it Paul's severe letter. This was the letter he bathed in tears that he wrote, as he says, in anguish of heart. They suggest Paul's severe letter was written right after his sorrowful visit. I think it is possible that there was a letter from Paul that we no longer possess. Not everything that the apostles wrote was considered to be divinely inspired scripture. Certainly, whenever Paul, whatever Paul wrote to these Corinthians was applicable at the time, but it may not have been applicable to all Christians at all times and in all places. If it had, the Holy Spirit would have preserved it and passed it on to us as he did the other 27 books of the New Testament. Whether it was another letter or not, in both 1 Corinthians and in this severe letter, Paul's subject was sin in this church. That's what he speaks of again here in verse 5. But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. Realize whenever there's blatant sin in the church, it becomes a blight on the whole church. Whether we realize it or not, everyone gets affected. The witness of the whole church is defiled. Here Paul says that this sinner hasn't just grieved him. Though he's kicked against Paul's authority, his sin isn't just a sin against Paul. It's a sin against everyone. You remember the Old Testament story of Achan? Because of one man's sin, the army of Israel was defeated when they went into battle against the city of Ai. Sin in the camp led to deadly consequences for the entire nation. All Israel ended up Achan because of Achan. And the same scenario was facing the church here in Corinth. Recall the immorality that Paul addressed in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. A brother was shacking up with his father's wife, his stepmother, and the church hadn't stepped up. These weren't just relatives who got drunk at the family reunion and ended up in a compromising position or something. That would have been bad enough. But these were two people who were playing house. They were acting like husband and wife. By permitting this, the church was sanctioning incest. And worse, the Corinthian believers were proud of their tolerance. They thought they were being loving and non-judgmental by refusing to impose moral standards on their members. In contrast, Paul was up in arms. Even the pagans realized the evils of incest. This was the sort of racy, raunchy story you'd see on the Jerry Springer show. Not in the church of Jesus Christ. You know, it's been said, tolerance is the virtue of the man who has lost his convictions. And that's what had happened in Corinth. An entire church had lost its moral bearings. This is why Paul rebukes the Corinthians. There's no merit in being soft on sin. The sin of this man and this woman was a cancer that if tolerated would spread and eat away at the health of the entire body. This church needs to call this incestuous couple to repentance or else kick them out of the church. 
Their choice was to repent or to be disfellowshipped. Hey, they could continue in sin or they could continue in the church, but they couldn't do both. Paul concluded in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 5, Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now understand, we all slip up from time to time and we sin. We all do. But falling to temptation and a lifestyle choice are different decisions. One comes from weakness. The latter is an act of defiance. Hey, we'll help you if you stumble. Hey, we all stumble. We'll help you. But if you dig in your heels and you just want us to ignore your sin or to approve of your sin, we can't do that. If you hunker down in a sinful relationship, or if you're persistently irresponsible toward your family, or you're always out getting drunk or stoned all the time, then have at it. But you need to keep that behavior out there. Don't bring it in here. The church needs to be in the world, but we become useless when worldly practices get into the church. The church isn't for perfect Christians. You know why? They don't exist. But neither is the church for pretend Christians who only want to look spiritual or fear spiritual on Sundays. No, the church is for practicing Christians who are trying to live their lives to please God. If you want to sow your wild oats, have at it. And then when you're broken and empty, then come back. We'll help you start. We'll help you heal. We'll help you start over again. We'll help you begin to grow. But don't ask us to sit around and watch you ruin your life without telling you that you're wrong and insisting that you change. That's not loving. Love cares enough to intervene. Well, apparently, after Paul's rebuke, the church at Corinth found the will and the courage to confront this incestuous couple. And guess what happened? They repented. The discipline worked. For we're told in verse 6, This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man. So that, on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. It's ironic, but the Corinthians had swung to the other end of the pendulum. In 1 Corinthians, Paul had to encourage them to take a stand. But now that the man's repented, Paul has to exhort them to forgive him. Take him back in now. Reaffirm your love. You see, the Corinthians were just as wrong for withholding their forgiveness as they were for tolerating his sin. Why is it we gravitate toward extremes? I mean, it seems like we're either too lenient or too harsh. G. Campbell Morgan once wrote, Love never slights holiness, but holiness never slays love. The two go together. If we really love someone, we'll want them, we'll want for them both forgiveness and holiness. Well, Paul says in verse 9, he says, For this end, I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. You know, we usually think of church discipline as a test for the person who's fallen into bondage. But it's really an indicator of the spiritual health of the church. 
When a situation arises that needs to be addressed, it's the church and its leaders that are really being tested. Most married couples I know eventually want to have a baby. But you know, when that baby comes, they don't always like changing diapers. Isn't that amazing? And that's how I see church discipline. We all want to see people get born again. But a church full of spiritual babes has a lot of dirty diapers to change. And that's why we need to roll up our sleeves and care. Well, he continues, he says, Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Now Paul was willing to forgive this man, and the Corinthians needed to do so as well. Had the church not shown mercy, had they not taken him back, they would have been playing right into Satan's hand. You know, Revelation 12, verse 10, refers to the devil as the accuser of the brethren. This is what Satan likes to do. He likes to take a person that Christ has forgiven and bury that person under a mound of condemnation. Maybe he's doing that in your life this morning. Christ has forgiven you. You've been forgiven indeed. Famous psychiatrist Carl Menninger once said, that if he could convince the patients in psychiatric hospitals that their sins were forgiven, 75% of them would walk out the next day. Unforgiveness, condemnation is the worst kind of prison. Let's not help the devil out either way. By withholding forgiveness or by tolerating sin, let's represent Jesus, His love and His truth. Corrie ten Boone and her family were members of the World War II underground who helped Jews escape from persecution. She and her sister eventually were caught and they were sent to Ravensbrück concentration camp. Years after the war, Corrie was speaking to a church in Munich when a man approached her and wanted to pay her a compliment. Corrie recognized this man as the Nazi guard at Ravensbrück, one of them. In fact, he had stood guard over the entrance to the women's shower and had subjected her and her sister to horrible indignities. The mere sight of this man conjured up in her all the horror that she had suffered. It all came flooding back. Vengeful thoughts filled her mind. Corey had spoken that night in this church on the need to forgive others the way Jesus has forgiven us. But when this man reached out his hand to shake hers, She said she couldn't raise her hand. She she just couldn't even lift it. It was paralyzed by her side. At that moment, she breathed a silent prayer. She said, Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Please give me your forgiveness. In her book, The Hiding Place, she recounts what happened next. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. Though she couldn't do it on her own, the Lord gave her help. The Lord helped her forgive this former enemy. And you know, He'll help you to forgive whenever you need to. You see, church discipline is a test, not just if we'll stand up to the sin, but will we also trust Jesus and extend mercy to the sinner? 
Well, Paul continues in verse 12. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit, because I did not find Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I departed from Macedonia. His troubled relationship with the Corinthians was so heavy on Paul's mind that it had interfered in his ministry. God was opening doors while Paul was being distracted. And I'm afraid that's our problem at times. How often do we miss the doors that God opens? To do a kind deed, to speak some encouragement into someone's life. Hey, to even share our faith. Well, yeah, that's other people, Pastor Sandy. That's not me. I'm not distracted. Really? A recent study revealed the average person checks their cell phone 221 times a day. That is every 4.3 minutes. And that's probably low. We tend to underestimate our cell phone usage. What's even more revealing is that the same study showed that a majority of people, they check their phone, quote, just to avoid the other people around them. God wants us to look for open doors, not try to avoid them. We all can get distracted. Well, Paul, too, missed out on opportunities in Troas because he was so eager to know what was going on in Corinth. He pressed on to Macedonia where he hoped to meet up with his messenger, Titus. He hoped to get an update. You know, it always amazes me, whenever I read 2 Corinthians, that two whole chapters of the Bible, first chapters 1 and 2, were written because a church group got upset that Paul wouldn't visit them when he said that he might. Isn't that amazing? Two old chapters get caught up with that kind of a thing. Just goes to show it's the little stuff that often causes the biggest problems. Major schisms can occur over slights or miscommunications or misunderstandings. I've had folks get mad at me and harbor a grudge for years because of simple confusion. Rather than assume the worst if they just come to me and ask what I really meant by what I said or did. We could have resolved the conflict. We could have enjoyed years of fellowship. We all need to do the hard work of resolving conflicts and extending forgiveness when and where it's required. Well, Paul concludes chapter 2 with a big picture lesson. The apostle now goes from the trees to the forest. He goes from looking at things through a microscope to now using a telescope. He goes from the micro to the macro. You see, so far, he's been focused narrowly. He's been focused on a local conflict with very few people, just a few believers. I mean, there's a stink in Corinth. That's what's been happening. But from here on, Paul begins to show why this squabble among such a small group in Corinth, was so strategic to the cause of Christ. He explains to us how that any disruption among Christians has colossal implications in the spirit world around us. Paul explains in verse 14, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of His knowledge in every place. Now here's some historical background becomes very helpful. 
when a Roman general led his legions to victory. And it wasn't just any victory. There were some qualifications. First, the war had to be fought on foreign soil. Second, 5,000 enemy troops had to be captured. And then third, new territory had to be added to the empire. But when all that occurred, the general was honored by the city of Rome with a triumph. The Roman triumph was the ancient equivalent of a ticker tape parade. It was a triumphant procession through the streets. Now this past June, when the NBA Cavaliers became the first Cleveland sports franchise in 52 years to win a championship, the city of Cleveland threw a triumphant procession. The team paraded through the streets. It was estimated 1.3 million fans came to celebrate. And that was the idea behind the Roman triumph. Through streets decorated with garland and packed with Rome citizenry came the victorious procession and the conquering general. First came the Roman Senate marching in order in honor of the general. The Senate was followed by the trumpeteers. Then carts carrying the loot, the spoils of battle came next, along with paintings and models of defeated ships and citadels. A white bull also was in the procession. It would be sacrificed to Jupiter, the god of Rome. Then came the defeated king and his captive princes, soon to be fed to the lions. After that were the musicians of all sorts. Then the pagan priests swinging their burning censers, filling the streets and alleyways with the sweet smell of incense. Finally, the conquering general appeared usually wearing a purple toga, riding in a golden chariot, pulled by four horses, sometimes even elephants, followed by the victorious troops that had marched with him to battle. One commentary reads, It made for a tremendous day, which might happen only once in a lifetime. Yet to Paul, this parade was a visual of what was happening spiritually all throughout the Roman Empire. For everywhere that Paul traveled, he was part of this triumph, this procession honoring the victorious General Jesus. And even today on city streets and country roads the world over, Jesus is still marching triumphantly. He was God in heaven, but he humbled himself and was dispatched to foreign territory. Our general overcame temptation. On the cross, he won the victory over sin and death. His resurrection began his triumph. And it's interesting, the book of Acts proves that our general qualifies for a triumph. We're told that on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 souls were saved. A few days later, another 2,000 souls were added. General Jesus met his quota. He conquered at least 5,000 captives right off the bat. In fact, his numbers continue to grow over the centuries Throughout the generations, down to even you and I, we have been added to this triumph. Paul sees himself with every other Christian who has ever lived, marching with heaven's conquering hero. And who are you in this procession? Are you a senator? A co-ruler in his kingdom? Are you a musician trumpeting his praise? Are you something that he has fought for? Are you part of the spoils of battle? Does he look at you as his treasure? 
Are you a sacrifice? A living sacrifice for Jesus? Are you one of his former foes who fought against him every step of the way until now you've surrendered? Are you one of the troops who's marched with him into battle? Who's been by his side? Are you one of the priests who swings your censer of prayer? Or are you the sweet smell of that incense that testifies of the general's greatness in his glory? Who are you in this procession? I'll tell you who you are. How about all the above? All the above. Every aspect of the Roman triumph speaks of the spiritual triumph that has now lasted for 2,000 years. Hey, never assume that Jesus is marching to win victories. No, the victory's already been won. Like the Roman triumph, we march not to victory, but from victory. We are celebrating a triumph that has already been won. And Paul adds to this analogy of this conquering general by focusing on one aspect of his triumph. In verse 15, Paul writes of its smells. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. I love this analogy. We're not only the treasure for which Jesus fought, we're not only his conquered foe, we're not only soldiers in his army, but we are the fragrance of Christ. It should be no surprise, but you and I are little stinkers. That's what we are. To other Christians, you are a breath of fresh air. Have you ever noticed whenever you discovered another serious Christian in the office maybe or perhaps on the job site or maybe you bump into them in the gym, there's this instant camaraderie. Have you ever noticed that? I mean like a bond exists. There's this mutual support. It creates a sweet aroma between the two of you. But to the unbeliever who's rejected Jesus... Another Christian is like an offensive odor. You could call us body odor. Well, we're the body of Christ. When a person hostile to Christ gets a whiff of a real Christian, it's like the smell of spoiled milk to them. They want to open a window and try to shoo us out. A Christian is a sweet perfume to some, but a noxious fume to others. Yet... If no one smells you at all, if you are odorless, there's a problem. Hey, I hope whenever I walk into a room, the people either hold their nose or breathe in deeply, one of the two. Either way, we should give off a smell for Jesus. In fact, right now, why don't you just kind of lean over to the person next to you and just take a whiff. What do you smell? Realize smells and odors, they can get pungent, can't they? If you've been around cigar smoke, or if you've been cooking with bacon, or if you've been cleaning with ammonia, the people around you will know you'll emanate that odor. Whenever I go to the Waffle House and I walk into to my house afterwards, Kathy always takes one whiff on me. You've been to the Waffle House, haven't you? And if you walk with Jesus... 
They'll, other people will pick up his scent on you. You won't smell like cigars, but you'll send out a waft of love and grace and joy and forgiveness and kindness and peace and mercy. Rather than stink up the joint, people will consider you a breath of fresh air. Love the Lord, and his smell will linger on you. Once a prospective missionary to China enrolled in a language class. To communicate with the Chinese, this missionary wanted to learn their very difficult language. Well, the first day of class, a professor walked into the room. She strolled up and down the rows among the students, never saying a word. After touring the room, she left abruptly, only to leave to return a few minutes later. And that's when she addressed the class. She says, does anyone notice something different about me? There was silence. As far as people could see, she was wearing the same dress. She had on the same shoes. Well, finally, one man, young man, he raised his hand. He says, I do notice that you've put on a lovely smelling perfume. And he was right. She had splashed on the perfume while outside of the room. And that's when she made her point to the class. It will take a long, long time before any of you learn Chinese well enough to be able to share the gospel of Jesus with a Chinese-speaking person. But even before you do that, you can minister the sweet fragrance of Christ to these people by the quality of the life that you live. We usually think of evangelism as what a person says, but it can also be how a person smells. It's about giving off a sweet fragrance to the people around us. Are your actions scented with love? Has your attitude been dusted with grace? Does the incense of the Holy Spirit burn in you? Do you release His aroma wherever you go? We are called the fragrance of Christ. And this is why the issues going on in the church at Corinth were such a big deal. It wasn't just the accusations the Corinthians were hurling at Paul or the man sleeping with his stepmom and how the church had reacted or whether the Corinthians were willing to forgive the fellow after he repented. There was much more to it. Those things were just part of the story. The Corinthians in Corinth were also part of this grand procession, this triumphant parade in honor of General Jesus. What would the spectators, the angels in heaven, and the pagans around them, and even the believers say, if in the midst of this march to honor Jesus, the Corinthians were seen grumbling and complaining about Paul, or indulging in sinful behavior, or tolerating those who did the same, or if they refused to forgive each other the way Jesus had forgiven them, what if they did that in the midst of this march to honor Jesus? They would be fouling up the fragrance. Rather than a sweet smell, they would be giving off a stench. This is why this was so important. And this is why the issues that go on in our church, Calvary Chapel, are such a big deal. When you complain about your brother or the church leaders, or when you choose sin over a lifestyle of godliness and holiness, or if you ignore your brother when he gets into trouble, or worse, when you choose to be unforgiving when he repents. Hey, if it were just us affected, this would be tragic enough. But it's not just us. 
Understand, when you behave this way, you are raining on somebody else's parade. We are tainting the honor that belongs to Jesus. We are marching in His triumph. Millions of angels are watching. People around us are watching. Are we giving off a sweet smell? Or does our witness stink? This is why Paul asks at the end of verse 16, And who is sufficient for these things? This is a huge responsibility. And we need the power of Jesus to empower us. The chapter ends, verse 17. For we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity. But as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. You know, the one smell that turns off God and people alike is hypocrisy. Phoniness is a stench in the nostrils, in every nostril. Paul says that he wasn't a peddler of the word. The term peddler was used for a salesman who would defraud his buyer. He would water down his tonic or he would rig the scales in his favor. He would use deception. It was anything for the sale. Paul wasn't like the used car salesman who slaps the hood of the car and tells you what you want to hear. No, he was sincere. He kept a clear conscience. And he did it because he knew he was part of this glorious procession in honor of King Jesus. As he says in verse 17, Paul remembers he is from God. And he speaks in the sight of God in Christ. Paul knew he was part of a triumph to honor a great general. So all he did, all he wanted to do, but especially the way he wanted to conduct his ministry, was to honor his Lord Jesus. And you too are part of this triumph. Let's remind ourselves continually that we are the fragrance of Christ. Thus, don't foul up the fragrance. Don't let your life become an embarrassing odor. Don't give off a stench. Give off the sweet smells of love and joy and peace and purity and devotion and sacrifice. We all need to be godly stinkers. Are you a godly stinker? You need to be. We need to be perfume in the nostrils of God and of man.